Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is one of the most interesting young politicians in America, Michael Tubbs. He's the mayor of Stockton, California, and at 28 years old, he's the youngest mayor of a city larger than 100,000 people. Stockton is a complex place. It's only 63 miles east of San Francisco, but it's a different world. Before Tubbs became mayor, Stockton had more homicides per capita than Chicago. And it was so financially strapped that it was one of the largest cities in America to declare bankruptcy. But he's trying some new things there. This year, Stockton started an experiment with universal basic income. It's where low-income residents are given $500 a month to spend any way they want. We talk with Tubbs about the program and what he hopes to learn from it. Michael Tubbs, next on It's All Political. Mayor Michael Tubbs, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So I want to talk to you about universal basic income. Uh, but first, I, I want to talk about your type of, uh, very amazing life story and how you got to be the, uh, the mayor of Stockton at the age of 28, which you are now. I uh, grew up in Stockton, and for people who don't know about Stockton, it's a city about, what, 320,000 people. It's have uh, some tough neighborhoods. When you took office, it had more murders per capita than Chicago, correct? Absolutely. When I started and, in 2012 on city council, it had more yeah. murders per capita than Chicago. Yeah. And uh, poverty rates was then about 23%. The foreclosure crisis devastated the city. Cities declared bankruptcy years ago. You've pulled out of that since. Um, and you grew up in a family that really wasn't political. And uh, as you say, more men in my family have been incarcerated than in college. Um, and then as you said in the TED talk you did the other day, and in fact, as I speak here today, my father is still incarcerated. Um, my mother had me as a teenager and government wasn't something that we had warm feelings from. But you're a very smart guy, went to Stanford. And, uh, but you're sort of a political um, epiphany, if you will, came when you were working as a White House intern and you got a call from your mom. Tell us what happened then. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank, thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. um, so as you mentioned, born and raised in Stockton. Mm -hmm. um, so the issues and the things we're working on in Stockton aren't things I studied at Stanford, but things I lived first and, and then studied. Um, so luckily was able to make it to Stanford. And while there, I was entering the White House. And on October 31st, 2010, my cousin Darnell James II was murdered um, in Stockton while I was entering in the White House. Mm -hmm. And that was the call I received from my mother. Um, I remember hearing that call. And first, it's not as if a, a murder or a homicide of a young person of color um, in a community of high poverty was surprising, mm -hmm. um, particularly in, in Stockton at that time. Right. Um, but just in the state of California, the first or second leading cause of death for black and Latino young men between 18 and 30 isn't car accidents, it's homicides. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was so close to home. It was a family member or someone I, I had birthday parties with, sleepovers with, church with, and just the expectation of his family going to go through life together. Um, I remember feeling very guilty because I was at Stanford. I had just finished interning at Google. I was at the White House. Things were going really well for me. Mm -hmm. It caused me to question, what did that mean if my own family was back home struggling, literally? Mm -hmm. um, so after speaking at the funeral um, and dealing with some of my pain, and, and, and first it was like a sense of nihilism, like nothing will change. So why should I care? Why should I try? 
Let me just make a bunch of money so myself and my family are comfortable. Um, but then it turned into, well, you know what? Maybe there's something for me to do. Maybe there's purpose that can be found in this pain. Maybe there's an opportunity for me to use this in a way so other people don't have to experience it as well. Um, and that's when I decided to run for city council um, during my senior year in college. 22 years old. So that moment totally shaped your future uh, in that. You uh, went on to become mayor and you've started doing some some very interesting experimental things in Stockton um, to try and deal with the things that you uh, that motivated you to run. And a couple of them, uh, in terms of the homicide uh, stuff, uh, the stat that we cited earlier, you, a couple of new things you've been doing is called Ceasefire and Advance Peace, two programs there. Um, and homicides have dropped 40%. Why has that happened and how are those programs yeah, I, absolutely. So in 2018, we had a 40% reduction in homicides and a 30% reduction in shootings. Um, this year, we're having a little bit of struggle, um, but we'll be, we'll be back um, to that trend um, shortly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first program, Ceasefire, actually started when I was on city council. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and the police chief, we worked together to create an office of violence prevention. And, to, and we were able to raise tax dollars through a measure that the citizens approved to really create this office of violence prevention, which, focused, which provided city funding for street outreach workers. Um, and for staff whose jobs were to just do nothing but build relationships and communicate with the less than 1% of the population that we know through data, through evidence, and through street intelligence are going to commit our, our violent crime. And, and for me, the epiphany was in a city of 320,000 people, it, that's a big number. But less than 1%, 150 people, that's manageable. That's solvable. That's We, we can talk to 150 people. And the idea is to give them... Um, resources and opportunities with the same intensity as we give law enforcement in jails. Because each and when, every one of these guys who happen to be um, shooters in, in our community are oftentimes victims and perpetrators of violent crime, meaning they've also been shot at, meaning they've also lost someone um, to violence, et cetera. Um, and then number two, they also have not, they have been in jail. 70% of them are on probation and parole, meaning they've been incarcerated. They've had interactions with the police, and that hasn't produced a rehabilitative change we would like to see. Um, so that so the idea is to message to them very simply that violence is not acceptable, but not to end there. But to say we also have these resources in, in terms of community supports, case management, behavior, cognitive behavioral therapy, jobs, tattoo removals, et cetera, so that you can make the right choices. And now we can hold you accountable for the bad choices you made because we actually have real opportunity. We're very clear to message to you. When I was mayor, I decided to add on to that ceasefire strategy, which I just described, a program called Advanced Peace, which is based off the Office of Neighborhood Safety in Richmond. And that fundamentals are the same, except there's seven days a week case management. There's a transformative travel to expose some of the, the guys to a, just a bigger world, bigger than their neighborhood. So these are these are folks who have been convicted of homicide or, or and or how do they where do you where do you intercept them? Yeah, the like the, where these do you are folks who there's reason to believe they're likely to either be shooters or likely to be shot at. And oftentimes those are one of the same people um, based off kind of data and analytics, based on current information around kind of street intelligence and based on sort of current crime trends or current, mm-hmm. current violence trends. Because violence seems random to those reading, but actually it's, it's predictable in a sense if it's group and gang violence and, and it cascades. And it, a lot of it is through interpersonal conflicts and fights and folks who don't know how to like mediate conflict without, without mm-hmm. resorting to violence. So anyway, the Advanced Peace Program, the difference between the ceasefire program is that it also has a fellowship where after six months, some of the guys are eligible to receive cash stipends um, for, for doing pro-social things and for helping to keep the peace. So 
I mean, people describe those policies as bold and radical, but I think it's bold and radical that for 30 years we've been double the state average in homicides, or I think it's bold and radical that for far too many kids in our community, they've been to more funerals than college graduations. So I think the solution is a lot less bold <laughs> than the a status quo that ends up working. It produces all type of trauma. It's also terribly expensive. Every homicide costs between 700000 and a million dollars between the city and county and all the systems, and that's like as a city that has emerged from bankruptcy and is now the second most fiscally healthy city, we still don't have a lot of money to be spending on things that, if preventable, we should pr- try to prevent. So that's those two programs. So that leads us <clears throat> to, the, to the universal basic income experiment. It started in February, and for what, the, I guess, about the next 14 months or so, this is a pilot program. There's 130, correct me if I'm wrong, Stockton families. They've you been got it. randomly se- selected. And uh, they um, they get an, uh, they make less than forty six thousand dollars forty six thousand so thirty three dollars. <laughs> they live in neighborhoods that, on average, are at or below the median census income. And how they were chosen randomly. Randomly. So, but, but I say that because there's some people actually in their program that make more than forty six thousand dollars. Okay. They just happen to live in the neighborhood where the average income of the neighborhood is forty six thousand dollars. Okay. And we got to that number because that's the average. That's the median household income for the city. So we wanted folks who made above that and below that to show a diversity of experiences. That's not just those people who are receiving the benefit, but it's all of us. It's people who own businesses, and it's people who are unemployed. It's people who are students, and it's people who are working. It's people who are unemployed, and it's people who work in the field. Just to have a diversity of experiences so it doesn't become like, oh, these people are getting something again versus, no, this is something inclusive for all of us. So it's even people who are making far more than that amount. Yeah, there's some people in, uh, I've heard in, in, in the program that make 80, 90, 100K, wow, and okay. some who make 10, 20, 30K. Wow. So, and the, they get $500 a month to, to spend whatever way they want. No strings attached. No how, strings how attached. Whatever they want. Okay. So take us back for a minute. To, tell us how you first heard about this. Now, you, for, you heard about it from uh, readings of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah. And, and, this, is, and this is, just for the listeners, this is something that's, over the years has been embraced by everybody from like Milton Friedman, the conservative uh, economist. Uh, you have and a lot of people in the Silic- Silicon Valley are into it. Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, uh, Chris Hughes' organization, his Facebook co-founder is founding this one. Um, even even Richard Nixon mused about it. That's uh, socialist. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us how you came to this and, and how, how this became a reality. Yeah, I, I remember first reading about basic income in 2009 or eight, as a freshman at Stanford and reading um, Dr. King's Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos Our, Human- Our, Chaos Our Community. And he talks about how, I think there's a beautiful cadence in the, in the book where he says, we try to solve for poverty by solving for everything else, and all those things are important. We solve for poverty with housing and education and jobs and healthcare, and that's important, but I'm now convinced after all my work that the simplest way to solve for poverty is probably the, the, the most effective and the most direct. And he advocated for a guaranteed income at a way more radical than $500 a month. He was saying it paid at the national median income for every American um, and keeping up with inflation. So that, again, in a time of unprecedented wealth creation and in a time of unprecedented resources, that everybody has at least an income floor upon which to build upon and make decisions and that at least the basic necessities um, are, are covered. So I remember reading that and saying, like, wow, I wonder what happened to this idea it's one of King's legacies. I Even as someone who grew up in church, um, had never heard this mm. from King. I heard about the dream. I heard about inner segregation. I heard about the evils of militarism, um, racism, and massive consumerism. 
but I never heard this solution. And I said, like, that's really interesting. So I said, it'd be interesting one day to be part of a conversation about the merits of said idea, whether, will this work or not? And it's my, my freshman year journal. Um, fast forward 10 years, uh, as mayor, I um, was in a meeting with my staff, and I said, you guys were solving for everything, but the issue is poverty in our community. When you have 23% of people in poverty and another 30 to 40% one paycheck away, we, we have to be a lot more imaginative about kind of the solutions because I know about the credit career supports. I know about the programs. I think it's all important and good work. But give me something crazy because that's what I want to take because <laughs> poverty is crazy. So give me something crazy um, to, 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 to fix it. And just, just to kick around this idea, long story short, they came back with this idea of a basic income. I said, no way. There's no way. It's my first year as mayor. I might want to run for re-election. I don't think we could do this. We just exited bankruptcy. Where's the money going to come from? Right. Um, but I said, so let's just, I said, but show me the research. Does it really work? And they talked about some pilots in other countries, give directly, Ontario. And they talked about the wide political support from Richard Nixon to Sarah Palin, the Alaskan Sarah Permanent Palin, Fund, yes. um, and et cetera. And, and, and I said, I want to be very clear. I don't, I said, if we do this, we have to be very clear that number one, we didn't learn about this because of a fear of the future. We learned about this because of reverence for the past. And folks like Dr. King, Thomas Paine, and the Great Revolution have been talking about this for, for a while. And that if automation displacement happens, it'll be a much more difficult conversation if the fundamentals aren't working now. And they're not when one in two Americans can't afford one for an emergency, where people working two or three jobs can't pay rent, people are being evicted by, for amounts as small as $300, et cetera. Um, I said, so if we do it in that spirit, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to do the pilot. Um, and then we decided we launched in, in February. And for the last three months, $500 a month has been given to 130 families. And What's been fascinating for me is realizing that everyone's financial situation is so individual that there's no way as a mayor or as anybody, I'm, anyone smart enough to predict all the myriads of ways folks can use discretionary income, particularly every month because money's not stable. Like Our financials, finance are very volatile. One month is car note. Right. One month is this emergency. One month is this. And having the flexibility and the cushion and the, and the guaranteed floor in the last three months at least has allowed certain people in the city to make kind of decisions, not to pay for yachts or trips to the, to, to the Cayman <laughs> Islands, but to pay for things like dentures and tutoring and, and car batteries, et cetera. So tell us how you're tracking the results here and, and what, what metrics are you looking for? What, what defines success? Yeah. Well, I think the answer would be different between me and our, and our brilliant research team from University of Tennessee and University of Pennsylvania. So on StocktonDemonstration.org, there's a 16-page or 30-page white paper that illustrates all the research methods and criteria and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think for, for, for they're, try, they're looking for answers to three questions. Number one, how is the money spent? <laughs> Not the individual level, but aggregate. Are there trends in terms of what people are finding the need to spend extra money on? Uh, maybe there's a policy solution there. Uh, number two, what are, the income, what, what are the impacts of this on income volatility? Uh, does this help stabilize some of that stress and anxiety that comes from finances fluctuating from month to month? So that's more of a, a feelings yeah. type of thing. It's yeah. more of an individual. It's yeah. a, not a qualitative, more of a, not a quantitative thing, yeah, more so, of a qualitative so, thing. So it's going to be mixed methods. So the first yeah. one is quantitative. How's the money spent? The second one is impact on in, income volatility, which I they would argue is probably mixed or both. And the third one is really kind of impacts on health. Um, and also for trying to find the right measurement, but impacts on feeling of belonging to community. Does that give you, because historically, particularly people who are struggling, 
don't have warm feel like you mentioned in the quote I said about my family. Don't don't have warm feelings from government. The only time right. you talk to government, so you're in trouble or you owe something, right? <laughs> like, so this is what does the interaction look like when government's providing you a, a, an income floor as part of the social contract? How does that change your perceptions of, of government? So those are things they're they're studying. For me, I think success was just in launching a pilot. I, I came into this not as a believer, not as a evangelist evangelist for the for the idea, but as someone who hates poverty and thinks mm-hmm. poverty is deeply immoral. Right. Um, and wanted to find and test anything that would do no harm and would get as close to a solution. And in doing this, I've learned so much, I've discovered so much, and we've already begun to influence public policy. You have folks like Governor Newsom um, trying to increase the earned income tax credit, um, which is a cash transfer um, to working the, folks. Which is uh, the, uh, num- one, of the number, one of the number one or two best ways to uh, alleviate poverty in some ways, the earned income tax credit. Cash transfer. People, yes. people like money. And then um, people like money. Senator yes. Harris, <laughs> um, another San Franciscan, Senator Harris, um, with her Lift Act, which would give, for the same cost of the tra- t- Trump tax cuts, would give every family making 100K or less, $500 a month, <laughs> through, the ter- through the tax code, almost like an EITC. Which sounds really familiar, mm-hmm. um, and 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 even cities like Newark and Chicago are studying basic income and plan to la- launch pilots. Um, state governments like the Massachusetts that's trying to do something through to do some pilots. So there's a lot. Cory Booker has his baby bonds. Cory Booker with the baby bonds. Yes. A white common air is launching in two cities pretty soon. So there's a lot of energy around um, the idea. And I think for me that's successful because when we started, there weren't none. It was silent. It was it was such a big deal because we're the first people. Say let's let's try it. Let's put it out there. Let's argue about. It. Let's debate the merits and let's test it. What were your reservations about it when you when you first uh, you know when you were debating the idea? What were what were your reservations like? Oh, I don't. Know. Um, <laughs> my reservations were different. I, I after mulling in my head, I was like, well, what's the worst that could happen? People in the community have more money to spend on things. Mm-hmm. Um, but so my reservation was that number one, 130 people just wasn't enough. And I didn't appreciate how even a pilot that small can have impact or punch above its weight through shifting public opinion, public imagination, forcing a conversation, and getting us to a point where it could go to scale. Because I'm just obsessed with scale. That's why I'm in government. I'm in government for 130 people. That's your Silicon Valley experience. Yeah, I'm in government for— How do we get to scale? Yeah, (laughs) 320,000 people. That's who I'm in in government for. So that was my biggest reservation. Like, okay, who would care? It's a lot of work, a lot of fighting— for 130 people, will it actually make a dent and get us closer? And I'm so glad um, that reservation turned out to be wrong. No, how do you know that's wrong already? That the, or that reservation was wrong? Because I, I that's one question I had is like 130 people. Uh, what can you learn from that? Yeah, well, again, I think I just go back to how before any study is done, we have people already championing the idea at state and national levels, and that was not happening before, particularly around direct cash transfers to people. Um, so for me, that's a win because in talking to people in the community who weren't selected, I said, well, the hope is this. The hope is that it goes so well in Stockton that the governor, the presidents, the senators, the assembly members are like, how do we make this work? For We have to do this for everyone. It's not just fair for these 130 people. Um, so just seeing these other cities pilots, seeing these presidential candidates come out with certain ideas in, in the same vein. And it's only, again, it's only been three months since disbursement, right? So I think as the program goes and continues and we learn more, there's much more of a uh, even more chance for impact in, in scale. So um, I'm, I'm happy we didn't let the this, this, this small thing, the, it being small, stop us from doing it because we start small, we're able to kind of 
build the momentum so that it could one day become larger. What you said you've already learned a lot about it. What have you learned from just the anecdotal stuff? Are you are you in contact with some of the families that get the I'm money? I'm not. Or? I'm not. Okay. I don't know who. I've not even seen the list. Yes. I can't even tell you who. That's probably a good thing to not oh, be yeah, uh, yeah, not I, be part of who gets chosen. <laughs> but what have you heard anecdotally uh, from from people about about? about how they're, how they're using the money, what they think of it, yeah. the, the bureaucracy involved, et cetera. We have a storytelling cohort of folks who are able to kind of share from the month to month or however, whenever press comes, like what's happening. And I've learned so much from them already. And they, we just, they started telling their story this month or last month. Um, one woman talks about how something as small as $500 a month is enough for her to breathe. Mm. Um, and she said, I feel seen. I feel like the, the leaders actually saw my struggles and empathized because I'm not wasting away and sitting around not doing anything. I'm working as a speech-language pathologist. I want to go back to school. I don't make enough. I have two kids. I'm single. I The rents are rising. My car bills. There's just so much happening. My lights were almost turned off last month. And this $500 a month, beyond the money, it's like, oh, my. Like they, people see that I'm struggling and, and want to be part of the solution. And then she talks about how it's been able to um, she said her son came to her and said, you don't seem as stressed, and a little 13-year-old son, um, because she knew there was an extra $500 to pay for whatever would come up in life um, during the month. And that, that's just huge. There's another man who talks about with the $500 a month, he's able to buy dentures. And, and I think those two stories in particular, if you think about it, you have these folks who are randomly selected who are using something as small as $500, not for not saving away, stocking away, not saving up to go to Vegas, but on necessities. Like what would have happened if they weren't selected, and what's happening to not just the three hundred twenty thousand other people in the city, but the millions of people in this country who who don't yet have an economic floor, and and, and that's what's been that. So I'm actually even more emboldened and even more impatient because I'm seeing that folks are using the money for things that that they have to have to live, or to to self actualize. And if I'm like, well, how would you guys have done it without it? And go to check cashing places or go into more mm-hmm. debt or, or borrow from this person or just be evicted. And, well, get and, off and you've lived this life mm-hmm. uh, in this city. What did, uh, can you go back and think of what, what 500 bucks a month would have, would have meant to your family? What would you have done? Well, it's hilarious because my mom tried a full court press um, <laughs> to be part of, of, of the pilot. And I told her, um, everyone else is randomly selected. I will guarantee it that you will not be selected. I'm not dealing with that headache. Oh my, she, that would have been a nightmare. She was going to protest and go to City Hall and say it's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for just like the other mother would have represented peace of mind. It would have meant that maybe she could have taken off work to go on some field trips. Um, mm-hmm. She was working at jobs sometimes. I didn't give pay time off, mm. retail jobs, et cetera. Um, or it would have meant the ability to save. So when I went to college, it would have been a nest egg for me. And luckily, I was given a full ride. But mm-hmm. if I wasn't, I have to take out loans. Or if I didn't have scholarships to pay for moving expenses or for my laptop, I would have been stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would have loved to have, like, a nest egg. Like, here, son, you did everything right. Good job. Or it would have been enough to have her not go to check cashing places as um, she stopped going when I was 12. But that would have been enough for her to stop even earlier. Mm. I mean, have even more income. It would have meant... Less stress, less anxiety, less irritability, a more ability to be present in terms of relationship as a parent versus just doing all the provision work as, as a single mother. Um, it could have meant maybe she would have time to go back to school mm-hmm. and, and get her AA. 
Um, it, it, it would have meant when I went to elementary school, I could have had my own <laughs> shirts instead of wearing my girl cousin's shirts with the ruffles. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it could have meant, I think there's like a, it's a I think it would have meant more agency, more opportunity, and more dignity, um, which, which is why I'm so passionate about doing everything we can to really solve for the problem. How do we make sure that not we take care of everything for everyone, but the things necessary to live, <laughs> like just the basic necessities, particularly when we do have the resources to do it. What, one question I've always had about UBI is, <clears throat> what do you do about people who, whether it be mental illness or drug addiction, is, is that really the right thing to do to put 500 bucks in their hand? I mean, I, you know, yeah. you know, what do you, you know, you're balancing that between being too much of a nanny state or where? I mean, what do you, how do you answer that? I think it's tough. I, I think that, and I share with all my basic income enthusiasts, um, that basic income or guaranteed income is not a panacea for all of society's ills. And it's actually unfair to expect <clears throat> this particular policy to solve for everything when we don't have any policy on the book that does that, mm-hmm. to have an unreasonable expectation of this one. Um, but I'll also say to, to the question you posed, um, well, I, I mean, in two ways. Well, the first way is a lot of mental illness or drug addictions can be catalyzed or caused by economic insecurity. Um, by people being feeling stressed or being like a lot of drug addiction starts with like financial ruin, like not like for your finances. And then when we think about housing and homelessness, a lot of the, the solution is, is is housing first, meaning we have to stabilize people by giving them a foundation. I'm giving them housing and then we could deliver services to them. So I think in the same way actually, um, some sort of cash transfer could probably help not solve for everything, but help some of the folks who and preventing folks from becoming chemically dependent and then falling into a men- mental illness because they actually have the finances to pay for things they need to pay for. Um, but then number two, I think in addition to that, we need to have things like robust universal health care. That includes mm-hmm. mental health um, for, for people so that if there is an income floor, that, that there's ability um, to, to make sure that folks are healthy enough um, to receive it. And then I will also say, even in the status quo, um, there's folks who are mentally ill who work or receive checks like SSI, et cetera. And I think just be much in, in the same vein that it's not, on that instance, not necessarily creating a new problem. And I think the, the, the merits of, of, of said thing out, outweigh some of the potential um, um, impacts, not to minimize those as not important or that they don't exist, but that they're, no, they're not worse than the size quo and, and the unbalanced the benefits far away the, the possible negatives. Well, do you see this as a, as a a purely a supplemental thing, not, not maybe not just for five hundred bucks a month, but Andrew Yang, who's run for president, is once a thousand bucks a month, um, and he sat in that very chair for his podcast, and and I said, well, do you see this as a as replacing the social safety net? And he said, well, he said maybe you know people could opt into if they wanted to have the cash or they want social safety safety net. And I was like, okay, yeah, where do you where no, do you no, where I, do you think I, this I, is a replacement for the social safety not. net? I, okay. I, I I completely and wholeheartedly disagree. Um, for example, a Section 8 voucher from the Housing Authority is generally worth more than $500. And the basic income shouldn't replace that. Mm-hmm. Um, and say with food stamps. And I think our existing social safety net is why our poverty numbers aren't higher. And I also think the greatness of this country is that we find ways to extend this idea of I am my brother and my sister's keeper. This idea of we're mutually, we're caught in a, in a in, we're, 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 t- we're tied in mutual, mutuality. That, that that we extend the social contract. So I see this much in, in the same vein. I think 
the existing social safety net is important, but there's still gaps. And I don't think we need to throw, throw it away because there's gaps, but we should enhance it. And I say that because I realize, like in the status quo, people sell their food stamps. Mm-hmm. And they don't sell their food stamps not because they don't need food stamps. They sell their food stamps because they need food stamps and they need to pay for these other things. <laughs> but there's a bunch of other things as well. So much in the same way, I, I view it as a definitely an enhancement of the existing social safety net and, and, and definitely, absolutely not, not a replacement unless you come up with a dollar amount um, that that is greater than or equal or greater than to what all these benefits and services provide. But even then, I would still say, for particularly for some people, the case management and things that come with some of the existing social net social safety net programs isn't bad and is actually helpful <clears throat> to get some folks to make right decisions. So I would definitely say I see it as an enhancement. Versus enhancement, okay. Um, we, you talked a little bit about scale earlier. Uh, right now, this program is funded by what a million-dollar grant from what's something called the Economic Security Project. And as we said, that was started by um, Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes. So what happens after after the money's out and uh, and how do you scale this and should you? I mean, I know it's three well, months into the program, but how it, would you do that? It depends on the results. Number one, I yeah. think as someone who's a caretaker of taxpayer dollars, I'm liberal, but I'm pretty very, very clear about spending money on what works and not spending money on what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what's great about philanthropy is that it's, been able to, uh, it's given us a space to test the idea and see if it's worth putting public dollars to it. Um, and if the results come back and say, oh, this is great, we should do this. Um, the number two, it ha- it, I don't think any city um, could, could do that. It would have to be at the smallest level, a county government, but I think even that's too small. So it would probably have to be at the state or national level. And I think there's a variety of ways to get there. Um, there's the EITC expansion, and then continue to expand that. <laughs> there's um, Senator Harris's bill. Um, et cetera. So, so I, I think for scale, it has to be at the state or local, a state or national government level. But I do th- know that state and national governments learn from local governments. Yeah. And it's our job to really be the laboratories for democracy and kind of push state and national as to where we should be and where we should go. So, so you see, this is something that could provide an example, some tangible results, one Absolutely. or the other, as, as to what it could happen. Um, as you, uh, by the way, has Andrew Yang reached out to you at all? Have you talked? Yeah, me to and him? Andrew, Andrew were on the panel together um, last October in LA. Uh huh. But you have not endorsed him or any other candidacy, correct? I'll be endorsing pretty. Oh really? I'll, I'll be endorsing shortly. And who will you be endorsing? The, it'll be known when endorsements made. <laughs> Come on, this guess it's between us. Guess I'm going to say Senator Harris. We'll see at the end of, in the, at the end of August. <laughs> okay, at the end of August. Okay. Um, this uh, program, of course, has not been without its critics. One of them you alluded to earlier, our, our old friend, Governor Palin, the former governor of Alaska, the re- former Republican nominee. She tweeted that uh, uh, social, vice presidential nominee, socialist ideas seem to be on the rise in this country. Everything from attacking gun rights to embracing Bernie Sanders and single-payer health care. Now, some are pushing for the concept of universal basic income and one city is even trying it out. You had a response to Governor Palin, didn't you? Yeah, well, I, I think um, Governor Palin was a popular governor. Um, till she till she quit. Yeah, she, but she was popular in Alaska. She that's was. why she was a yeah. nominee for vice president. Scary yes. thought. But she was. Um, partly because she, ex- she increased the disbursement amount for the Alaskan Permanent Fund, 
which is a thousand dollars on average that every Alaskan gets. Explain what that is. That's yeah. Uh, yeah that's so. Uh, in, right now in America, in Alaska, if you move to Alaska, and maybe that's why they do it sometimes. Yes. Sometimes people to move, but if you move to Alaska, if you live in Alaska, you are guaranteed money from the Alaskan Permanent Fund. Everyone, every man, woman, and child is given a certain amount from the government every year. It's usually about a thousand dollars, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, just for being Alaskan as part of the social contract paid for by gas revenues. Um, starting in the 70s by a governor who said, you know what, we're creating this wealth. There's wealth being generated in this country, I mean, the state. How do you make sure everyone gets a piece of it? And how do you make this part of the, what it means to be Alaskan? So it's not about these people are, le- are, are needy and they need this, but it's what we all get for being, for, 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 for being part of the social contract. Um, and Sarah Palin, to her credit, actually ex- made it bigger. She, she was like, wow, I think people like this. Why not do more of what people like? <laughs> and her popularity almost through the roof. So my response to her was that actually it was modeled after Alaska Permanent Fund. Are you familiar with it? Um, um, the uh, Tell us a little bit also you have the, the Stockton Scholars Program, and that's going to give $1,000 a, uh, a year to students who will be attending four-year universities and 500 bucks a year to students attending two-year uh, colleges or trade schools. Um, what... How does that change? And you also could possibly have the state budget, California state budget that was just passed uh, this week, includes $2 million for a possible CSU campus, California State University campus in Stockton. Stockton's one of the biggest cities in the country without a university. Second largest metro area in this nation and the largest in this state without a public institution. But we have two youth prisons, we have a prison hospital, we have a $400 million courthouse. It's unacceptable and unconscionable in the Golden State to, 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 have, such, to, to, to have that level of perverse investment in a particular place. But happy to work with this administration, our friends and the legislators and others to kind of reverse that in the CSU system, reverse that trend um, and make sure that the kids who live in San Joaquin County also have an opportunity um, to attend higher education in, in their community. And in that vein, we started Stockton Scholars, which is a um, place-based scholarship. I was able to get a $20 million grant from the Spiegel Family Fund. Um, so for the next decade, every single kid who graduates from our largest school district is guaranteed a scholarship to a four-year school of $1,000 a year, $500 a year for a tr- two-year school, or $500 a year for a trade school, meaning we don't care. We're not going to tell you what to do, but the expectation is that after high school, you have to do something. And just for perspective, what's the college graduation rate in Stockton? Something like 19%? Yeah, so currently right now, of the top 100 metro areas, um, Stockton is number 98 in terms of adults with a four-year degree. 25-year-olds with four-year degrees are higher, and it's 17%. Um, which, and I think for me, I, I think of the change that I've been able to make um, in the past seven years since being in Stockton because I had the opportunity uh, to go to college and the opportunity to go to college that was affordable so I didn't have student debt so I was able to come back and serve. And I think if that one person can do that, what if we do that, at, again, my favorite word, at scale for an entire district, <laughs> for an entire decade, how many kids will come back and serve and, and, and boost those um, college college trade school or, or two-year school completion rate. So I'm, I'm super excited. It's one of my f- – everyone talks about the basic income, which is important yeah. nationally, but I think specifically locally focused, Stockton Scholars is probably some of the most important work we're doing. And uh, now Stockton, as, as we alluded to earlier, is out of bankruptcy, but you still have $390 million. Is that what it is in pension deficits or liabilities, I should say? What are you – how are you going to pay yeah, for that? Well, not, not to brag, um, but our pension deficit is significantly <laughs> lower than San Francisco's, I mean, even per capita. Um, in most cities in, 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 in the state, actually, we're the second most fiscally healthy city, meaning we have 
um, less debt per, per per revenue rate. It was a recent ratio. stat that you are second yeah. second. You so, in Irvine? Yeah, in Irvine, right? Yes. Um, so I think the in Stockton the bankruptcy was difficult. It was painful. It happened right before I was elected, and, and very tough decisions were made. Um, people who were promised health care for life had that taken away, and now mm-hmm. have to pay. Uh, people's salaries were slashed. People were laid off. It was just an ugly, ugly, ugly situation. And kudos to our employees and our retirees for shouldering a, a lot of, of that burden. Because I think I was very frustrated when I came in when I learned that how much we took as a community loss. But our creditors still got $0.92, on the, 92 cents on the every dollar. So they only lost $0.08 cents per dollar. So they took a loss, but not as much of a loss as people. And, and, and that was a decision made at, at, a, at a judicial level. Um, but I think that goes to show how oftentimes in our community and our society, our values are, are misplaced, our priorities are misplaced. Um, so the plan for that, again, I think has to be a statewide plan um, because every city um, right. in the state has obligations to their retirees based off contracts they sign to, to pay a pension. And figuring out revenue sources and how to do it um, is going to take the, the, our friends in the unions, the governor, the assembly. It's going to take everyone to really mm-hmm. come to the table. Because um, I would hate for any other community to go through what Stockton had to go through just eight years ago. So uh, as we alluded to earlier, you are 28 years old. You're the youngest person to be mayor of a city larger than 100,000. So, so take that, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, your age is obviously an advantage in many ways. You're, you're open to experimental things like what you're doing. But I was, what is the challenge for you to understand, you know, something that is a challenge for you to understand because of your age, like what maybe what older folks are going through or what mm. middle-aged people are going through or, or just being 28 years old Yeah, no, I, I, with a mayor of a big city. I think I'm really blessed um, to be mayor of a city like Stockton. I'm answering your question on your roundabout way, but it, it's so diverse. So I'm, I'm called to empathize and understand and make decisions on a variety of experiences that necessarily aren't my own. <laughs> Um, whether it's with our immigrant communities or our English learner communities or our LGBTQIA communities or um, all, there's all these experiences I haven't had, but I've learned to lead us to listen. And if I can listen and empathize, I, we could get to a solution, particularly around age. Um, I think one thing I haven't yet, I kind of, I, no, I actually understand, I just don't agree with, is the pace at which things happen. Like, I mm-hmm. get why I'd go slow, be careful. But I don't think being fast and being careful are mutually exclusive. I think you can move and, and move and be careful while moving. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. the only way to be careful is by sitting still. Um, and I also think that I think I, I have trouble. What I have trouble understanding is this. If the past was so great um, where people were able to buy, some, my colleague was telling me that when she was in Santa Barbara in the 70s, she had just graduated from high school. She was making $9,000 a year, but her rent in Santa Barbara is only $150 a month, and she had no roommates. Oh. Now, if we, we think about how people work so hard in the greatest generation, and, and all, but all these government investments like the GI Bill, and th- like there's all these things that kind of help pay the way. Why wouldn't you fight for that for this generation? If you see the way all these things work, like well, I, I don't understand why now it's, it, it, it's especially if, if, if the world be inhabit is one we inherit and why there isn't much more of an urgency in it demanding um, from some of my older colleagues to, to, to have the same level of government investment we saw after World War II or have the same level of government in, in investment. We, we Again, the Great Recession we just had not too long ago 
was the worst recession we've had since the Great Depression. We're at the highest levels of income inequality since the Gilded Age, yet there's nothing like the New Deal being proposed or pushed for. Um, so I just have, I have real struggles understanding why is that okay, acceptable and why is that okay and why more people who are beneficiaries of said policy in the past aren't demanding we do the same for their children and their grandchildren. Okay, you're, you're, uh, you're on the national radar. Uh, you are obviously got ties to Silicon Valley, connections there, you have connections with money. What is your uh, future political goals? And, and, and please, let's just stipulate with the, I, you know, I'm focusing on my job no, now, no, blah, no. blah, 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 blah. Well, okay. In 2020, <laughs> um, I'm going to run for mayor again. Uh-huh. Um, and, and after that, I term out. It'll be 2024. I'll be 34 years old. That's too young to run for president. And I don't think you can run for president after being mayor of, of Stockton. Oh, um, so, what about Buttigieg? He's a, the, 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 the South is, Bend is P, like P, one third the size. Pete is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the moment is also different. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so but, okay, twenty twenty four, you're so termed out. Twenty twenty four, I'm termed out, and then I think there'll be a variety of options, and after, there'll be twelve years in local government, mm-hmm. which is like dog years. So that's what eighty four years of government <laughs> years. So at that time, I'm, I'm having a baby in October. Um, so the baby will be, what, five, six, five, yeah. six? Yeah, six or something. And it's going to be a conversation with my wife and the baby about kind of what, because it's, a, the, I mean, the work, it's easy to talk about. The work is hard. Like, it's yeah. 24-7. It takes your emotions and everything. Um, so I want to make sure that I'm able to be a good partner and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a good father but if I was to run for something after um, mayor, it would have to be something um, that was either statewide or had impact and on the issues I care about, which are poverty and just the opportunity structure right. writ large in our country. And I think government's a way to do that. So if I was to run after 2024, again, it would be for a statewide office. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not tethered to be, to being in office. I think I can impact that in a variety of ways, whether it's private sector or working for an elected official I really believe in, or administration um, I really believe in, et cetera. So I'm keeping all options open, but I also understand that, to your point earlier, the best way to have options in the future is to do as great a job as I can in the present. And uh, I would, before I let you go, I just wanted to recommend everyone check out uh, the mayor's uh, TED Talk, which is excellent. And it's, it's an, somewhat of an unusual theme. You you talk a little bit about, about the stuff we talked about today, but you, you nod to it. It's more about sort of our general obligation to take care of our neighbor yeah. uh, so it's and it's very religious too yeah yeah well i think i'm a, I'm a, I'm a, You're a church dude. i'm a little church boy yeah, yeah. Little, i don't do everything the book says I, yeah. I who, do, who does my past three minds like i do better <laughs> but i do really believe in kind of the ethos of love and decency and common humanity and justice that permeates um throughout my faith so the ted talk um uses the good samaritan parable and talks mm-hmm. about just the and i think what people miss in that parable is that like Samaritans and Jews like hated each other. Like it was such a noteworthy story because a hero was like a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews hated each other, like at war for centuries, like desecrated each other's holy places. Like just no, like it's, and that was the example of being a neighbor and the lesson was being a neighbor in spite of painful histories and wrecking with like different and painful histories and like hatred. And still the obligation to be a, be a neighbor because despite all that, there, there's a there's a common um, – we, we owe each other because we're inhabiting this ecosystem together in my opinion. So so it starts with there. 
but also talks about how being a good neighbor and getting along um, isn't enough. That it, the first step is to see in people who are different from us, not our fears, our anxieties, our uncertainties, or the prejudices we've been taught, but to see ourselves reflected because they're also. Like, I think we forget like people are like really people, right? We're people, like first, we're all yeah. same species. Um, but then number two, it also talks about how. That's a first step, but we could hold hands and sing kumbaya, but if we don't correct massive structural inequality, uh, massive disparities and opportunity, we're going to continue to have a problem, and we won't, won't, won't have the, the society we deserve. So then the second part talks about how do we kind of restructure the road people travel on um, so that it's more likely to produce the outcomes we want to see. Where, because I think for me, my dream, um, if not before I die, before my, my unborn child, um, lives 100 years and, and, and then, then passes, is that we live in a society where we could truly say the outcomes we see are because of people's choices. And then we could say, you're this, because you chose that. And this is not happening for you because you chose that. I Because I think that's just the easier space to operate in. It, it's easier to make You're sense. not restricted by class or race yeah, or was, gender. You chose that because then that, the yeah. policy solutions are easier. It's just an easier conversation to have. I think that, that that's simple. You chose it. And I get that's why a lot of people go gravitate for it because it's like, Makes it easier to organize your world. I'm this way because I make good choices. You're this way because you make bad choices. And unfortunately, that's not the case. So the TED Talk talks about the need to see get back to seeing each other as neighbors, even across difference. I, I could not like you, but I need you. We're <laughs> neighbors, right, right. but also we, it's not enough for me just to like you. If we we can like each other all day, but if we don't fix these structures that that have been set. Yeah. It's got to be more than thoughts and prayers. More than thoughts and prayers, more, more than kumbaya and empathy. Yeah, empathy yeah. isn't justice either. But I also think that we, we, we have to um, understand that the society and the structures we have aren't, these are choices, beliefs, and behaviors we all buy into. <laughs> like these aren't, these things can change. And historically, structures like have changed. Like 300 years ago, I would be a piece of property, literally, and not a mayor. But that changed. And it didn't just change because it changed. People said this is unacceptable and changed it. Just 100-plus years ago, women couldn't vote. And I could be lynched with impunity. And that didn't just change. Like, people forced and demanded to change. And I think we lose that in this present moment, that the things we hate are here, but they don't have to be here. We have the power to change it. So that's kind of the main lessons from the, from the TED Talk. It's, it's great viewing, and uh, I recommend it to everyone. Mayor Tubbs, thank you for being on It's All Political. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Mayor Tubbs for coming in here to San Francisco to be on the podcast. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you know what you do with 500 extra bucks in your pocket or not, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.